I was tired of walking around the field. The flowers grew there in such riotous profusion that it felt a very crime against the good things of nature that I should be denied their pleasure. And yet, every time I even so much as looked out the window, ma'am would slap me away. She would scold me for even imagining that I could find something good in a field so cursed. I asked her about the curse many times. She never provided enough information to sate my curiosity. So, of course, me being the weaselly little lad that I was, I would often escape my afternoon chores to cloud the outskirts of the field. My eyes would frantically dart among the weeds and flower bushes to see if I could divine even a single secret from the place. Nothing. I found nothing in that place my mom claimed was cursed, except for a tranquil, untamed landscape that stood in wondrous comparison to the tamed and boring plots of our farm. Of course, I never caught up the courage to actually dash in there and take a look. I only ever skirted along the boundary, letting my mind fill in the place with all sorts of behemoths and traps of the mind, only to grow disappointed when I wasn't ambushed from the tall grasses by anything other than grasshoppers and gnats. Whenever we had friends over, we'd dare each other to go inside the cursed patch of land. Once one of the bulkier kids, some kid by the name of Wright, called our bluff and ran straight in, only to come out screaming with a spider in his hair. We laughed it off for a while, but given the place's reputation, we quickly thought to ourselves that the spider was Bright's divine punishment for straying into grounds so oddly unholy. At night I would dream of lights passing over the field from far away in the sky, and this I swear, I saw one such thing fly straight over the grounds, red, blue, and black, but just for a second, then gone. As I aged, I never gave much attention to the plot of land. Responsibility fell on me like a brick from above, and, possessed with my studies as I was, I had no time or energy to devote to such odd pursuits as unraveling the mysteries of a field that, even after so many years, my mother wouldn't talk about. And so I became a thaumaturge and left my home for the cold graces of the empire and all it stood for, never having so much as stepped a foot in the tall grass. And yet, even among the arcane spires of the resurrectionist halls, a faint glimmer of curiosity ran about my spine. Through my newfound contacts, I probed the area of my birth, offering bribes and positions of supposed merit for a look at the mystery my mother and all her kin had preserved for me. Eventually we found one such man who broke into tears over a glass of liquor. A battle, he cried. It was the sight of a battle. My agents pried him as long as they could, but could get nothing more than that, and that he had lost his beloved grandfather in the skirmish. He spoke no further, not even for a princely sum. So I delved back into the history books. Wars had been fought in the surrounding nations a dozen times over, but the most catastrophic, and somewhat ironically least recorded of all, were the wars with the wall-dwellers, those rabid wares of purple. And yet it struck me as very odd that even a conflict with such enigmatic beings as the wall-dwellers would go unnoticed by the historians. So I scoured even further, having my servants pull apart book after book. No mention. No formal nation-state had laid claim to the area of my birth before the Empire, so there were no official records except from merchants who traded with the locals for foodstuffs and trinkets. 
We had nothing except the word of the man in his cups, and that was not enough for me. It was a battle site, eh? Well, I was a resurrectionist. If the living would not tell the truth save under duress, then I would find it willingly from the dead. I packed my bags and personally set out for home, for the first time since I'd won my gloves. I was nervous, true, but I had grown willful in the fire of politics, sturdy and diligent under the ever-waking gaze of death. Now I approached the field with a newfound confidence. Even in the winter, the place still reeked of the perfume of flowers, was still saturated in the heartfelt cries of songbirds and rodents. As the masters said, fear was relative. The things of nature did not fear this place, and I decided that neither should I. I beckoned my followers out into the field in a sheer mass wave attack, much as the old generals had done dozens of years ago in the dark days. The restless feet trod across the field with particularly inspired grace. I did not want them to trample the flowers and grasses I had so long ago come to adore. The purple banners often used explosives in their combat, and I was not willing to let even a single one of them roll into the feet of the living. After all, that was the entire point of the dead, no? A couple of explosions were heard from far away in our archaeological outpost. Five corpses were missing, so I ordered my legion across the fields four more times just to be safe. That took up a good couple of days, which I spent doing not more than reading official reports and playing cards with my fellow living historians. And yet, on the second day, I was compelled to look towards our old house, just on the edge of the clearing we had set up. Mom had long ago moved away to Ritbursk on a stipend I'd given her, and my siblings had followed in kind, setting up their own trades in that mildly above-average city. No one stayed behind to tend the fields to keep the ivies and crawlers from absorbing the old wooden shack into the thick coat of foliage. Only a few sheaves of wheat remained, and they shivered in the breeze as though afraid that their kind would not last even a single more year. Far away, she was shivering in fear and hatred for my betrayal of her trust, wasn't she? But then again, she had betrayed me my entire life, not even allowing the one who had grew up to be one of the most influential and powerful men this side of the ravine to taste the secrets of the past. If she learned, I would deny and nothing more. So the second day ticked by, and we finally decided the field was safe even for living feet to tread over. I felt saddened at the fact that the relentless marching of the dead had removed much of the beauty from the place, many of the flowers and grass stems lying wilting on the ground crushed by relentless feet. But I was after something much more beautiful than the fleeting looks of a flower. I was after knowledge, and the relentless feet had opened the path to that for me. With our shovels and picks, we passed over broken cart after broken cart, their splintering remains molding and cracking into the wet earth, set to nourish the plants we had just killed. Rifles, ammunition, vague devices of wall-dweller origin that neither I nor my colleagues could divine a purpose for, but we didn't find very many skeletons. Someone's femur called out for a taste of apple pie, another's cranium whispered a poem into my ear so boring and horrible it doesn't bear recitation in this record. We ran about this, like, for about five days, finding mere pieces of bodies and trying our darned best to wrangle some intelligence out of them, but 
Alas, very few humans are willing to endure corporeal existence without the strength of a full body. So, we were getting no more information out of the battle site than we would have if we were just mundane archaeologists. Easterling forces had clashed with local powers in these fields, but which way did the battles go? Who died? And why had the experience been so tragic that the entire story would have been closely contained? Then I found the intact one. It was late in the evening, and I was kicking up dirt in random directions for no other purpose than to blow off a little bit of steam. One singular kick of my foot slammed down against something hard. Human ivory. In a horrid mixture of fatigue, exasperation, and hope, I set about having my servants dig the thing up for me. Bless the stars, they hauled up piece after piece after empire-loving peace. I banished every single bit of my fatigue to the netherworld, and set aside my night for preparing the sacraments. When all the notes and spices were in place, I didn't hold back. No, I let my hands fall straight on the thing, uncovered. That I am alive means that I am living testimony to the existence of luck in our universe. My mind melted with the long-dead man in the dark dance of wits, each following each other in succession, spiraling pirouetting. He learned of my shack, overgrown, decayed, my desires to learn all the shadowy secrets of my past, my favorite flavors of drink. In exchange, well, the spirit told a story, long forgotten. When he had heard the news of the purple banners running loose in the east, he never shivered in his seat. He never bothered to discuss the topic of his friends. As the news crept closer and closer, each day he would take off to the lake in his little dinghy and pull in another fine catch, then maybe embrace the knight in his wife's arms if he didn't stink too much. His world was small, and he was happy for it. But the purple banners never bothered to respect the small. They never really respected the large, either. They carried themselves forward across the countryside in a tidal wave of misery, always bubbling just beyond the horizon of the man's thought. No matter how much he enjoyed the little pleasures, his friends and family could not be so detached, and so, through exposure, neither could he. He noticed the wrinkles in their eyes, begged them to forget their stress, but they did not listen, save for trying to drown their stresses in drink and debauchery. That didn't work, and the lines of stress in their foreheads grew deeper and deeper. The man's conversations with them became more pithy and dead, until he wouldn't even get a response for his recognition of that spring's flowers. The purple banners were marching. A wild doctrine had escaped from the realm of ideas to claim flesh and blood, no matter the race, no matter the creed. The purple banners were marching, right over the lakes, trampling the flowers with their metal boots. But why was the man to worry? He knew the true things in life, his boat, his friends, his family, his living. What more could there be to the world than those simple pleasures? But the purple banners did not care. They stomped over town after town, and news soon came to fill the very air. He was out fishing when his cousin by the name of Ahmed came by, a furious sweat rolling down his forehead, even though it was a pleasant day. The purple banners were but a few kilometers away, he screamed. But the man did not believe him, could not get himself to care enough to stir his boat out of the water. Ahmed pulled out his own little skiff, came closer to yell to beg the man to lend his strength to the struggle of freedom and good. The purple banners were marching, and could only be turned down by many men. That many could not be formed of other people. But the man did not listen. 
He did not believe freedom existed, for he had wallowed in it his entire life. He never had reason to question the boundaries of his existence, much less to seek them out, so he had never felt any shackles round about him. So it stood to reason that the purple shackles did not exist. Ahmed slammed the skiff straight into the man's boat. They scuffed each other, nothing more, but the man was finally jolted into pulling his craft to the shore. It was either that or have the boat he'd spent so much time in from all the way back in his childhood to be smashed to pieces. And for what? Ahmed ranted and ranted about what the purple banners were doing, besmirching the pleasant blue and white of the skies. The man wanted to jump back into the water, let the cool grace of the lake embrace him once again. And yet, even still, he followed Ahmed down the long, dusty trail, away from their village to a palisades he never knew existed. He was handed a gun, an antique relic of a more barbaric society than the man had ever seen or heard of. It was barely functional, but he learned to use it well enough, to clean the rust and grime off it to the point where it posed a threat to all he passed by. As he hefted it over his shoulder, even his neighbors viewed him with a sort of grim resignation in their eyes. The good life was over. Joy had been replaced by respect, the very passage of time cemented with fear. But even as he drilled, the man did not feel the fear gripping his heart. He was not all that stupid. He knew what the weapon in his hands could do to people, as well as the drastic shift in his life it represented. But he still drilled. He dreamed of the lake of his old way of life. He asked his fellows when he could get it back, and then they stared at him in exasperated silence, then screamed at him about what the purple banners meant. But they said they would take the lake away from him. There in the palisades, the lake had already been taken away. Everything had. They continued to drill. Day turned to night, night to day, and the purple was not even on the horizon. He missed his life dearly, missed a place he could go without everything and anything being turned into this great game of armies and power. In the lake, he felt there was no power. He fished, the fish made more fish. He was happy. But then the day came when the purple besmirched the radiant greens of the rolling hills, and his captain needed him awake. Sometimes he had waken up early to fish, if there was need for more coin, but never, never at this time when even the stars balked under the glare of the endless night sky. A surprise attack. He could hear screaming and explosions lightly rocking in the distance. He hurriedly passed around the archaic camp, gathering supplies, complying with orders. His freedoms were already gone, and yet they said the purple would take them away. He missed the lake. He stood rank and file with his fellows, One's usually more invested in breaking the purple tide than he was. A nervous energy ran through the crowd as the men and women of the free outlands pondered upon the evaporation of their immortal souls, the losses of their families, the burning of their homes for the sake of the of color changes on the map. Order dissolved like a shoreline in a storm. The waves of purple lashed about, consuming each and every last one. Orders had been made to give no quarter, for a surrender ultimatum had been refused. Even the auxiliary troops of the Outlanders aimed straight for the heart. There was a brief patter of gunfire from the palisade walls. Maybe a dozen of the purple-clad ones fell. 
This was met with a roar that made a mouse of the grandest thunderstorms. Here, all the people who had shackled him in this pursuit fell, leaving him alone, face to face with one man. An outlander, clad head to toe in regalia. The outland man was very young, too young to even have experienced some of the best joys of life. But here he had been made purple, dressed in the colors from heel to head. A violent conflict was being fought in his eyes, as terrible and bloody as that rolling across the fields. Its outcome, unlike the greater struggle, was not evident. Every second the bayonet drifted a centimeter closer or farther away, simply by the impulse of the young man's breath. He had cut up enough fish to know the weapon was sharp enough to do the same to men. Even still, he didn't panic as much as he expected to. He didn't even bother plating with the young man for too long. The language was too different, his accent too thick. Seconds passed, almost a minute. But then another came. This one man had no eyes. The organs of sight might have been implanted in his skull, but he knew nothing of good, nor anything of evil. He yelled at the younger man, spewed invectives at him for his cowardice. And then the bayonet came crashing down at the dead man's throat. The pain was sharper than anything ever experienced before, but it wasn't long. It had been worse when he'd had the flu, in all honesty. Here one second, gone the next. Something forgotten. They always forget. Then me. Then nothing as I stumbled back into the bay of flowers. They were purple azaleas, relics of off-world agriculture that I'd simply loved as a child. I did not need to dig. The roots lay tangled up with the fibers of purple banners, the few that fell to the ground. My vanity project having drawn to its natural conclusion, I turned my horde north to the public works projects they were building along the Red River. Dams, levees, watermills, you know, the usual thing that kept me in salary, kept the tide of progress rushing forward. But what would progress lead to? I'd seen the weaponry they were designing in the Wastelands. They mimicked the very technology of the bombs that had forced me to scour the area with dead feet, delay my life simply so that I and my fellows would be safe. Was that what the progress supported? And yet, even with the legions of unfeeling, ever-patriotic bodies the Empire now wielded, the wall-dwellers were still out there, doing, well, something. Something that might, years or even months from now, etch up purple banners from here to the sea. So maybe. The confusion hurt my mind. I despised not knowing of worrying about outcomes. That had been my specialty. When the undead came, I embraced them because I knew they were a good for society, a ticket to lives better lived for all the living, not just the ruling castes. But at some point, I, I guess I just hadn't been thinking far ahead enough. I was an idiot. Even after years of studying and honing my mind, I was just as dumb as the kid who imagined magical bees stalking through something as quiet and ordinary as a field of death. Perhaps the future was not mine to tell, nor even the past mine to divine, but if I learned anything that day, it was this thing. One day, some day, the purple banners would come marching again. So what if they had secluded themselves for a time? It was idea made flesh that made them march forever stained this field with their curse of suffering, of joys ended prematurely. So perhaps the idea had lost its body for a while. 
It lurked just beyond the radiantly lit areas of possibility, a shadow flickering the minds of the people not just within the wall, but outside too. Just like the dead lurked just beyond the realm of reality, so too the purple banners gently rippled in the wind of the future, soon to be here, eventually forever. So the purple banners would march again. The color purple didn't even matter.